Hello again, everyone, wherever you may be, and welcome to this special live edition, our 156th edition of KHY Community Radio's Capital Week, your window on the world of Iowa politics, where we explore and analyze who's been making news in and around the state capitol, what that news is, and what it all means. We are so glad you're with us on this early Tuesday morning after the Iowa caucuses. I'm Dennis Hart, joined as always by my partner in politics, but never this early, Laura Bellin of the blog site Bleeding Heartland. Good morning and welcome, Laura. Good to see you, Dennis. We are live with you today because the Iowa caucuses, of course, took place last night. And of course, we are going to talk about what happened and what it might mean for the future in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. We have some headlines for you on this Tuesday morning, and then we're going to go over all of it. The biggest headline, Donald Trump won the caucuses and he won them easily. Ron DeSantis beats Nikki Haley for second place, and Vivek Ramaswamy drops out and endorses Trump. Those are the headlines. Now for the rest of the story. Laura, Donald Trump won 51% of the vote last night. He swamped Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. Yes, and it was expected that he was going to win by a lot. I think a lot of people were looking to see, was he going to exceed that 50% mark in a competitive caucus year? No Republican candidate had ever gotten more than 50% of the vote, and he met that goal. I want to mention that the turnout was way, way down. Of course, the weather was a factor there. There were many people who stayed home because of the extreme cold. And there were some people, I'm sure, who just couldn't get to their caucus site because a lot of the rural roads were not plowed. But the the total turnout was a little more than 110,000. And not only was that way below the 2016 turnout, which was a record for Republicans of about 187,000, it was even below the 2012 turnout, which had been about 122,000. So uh, Donald Trump, his team, his ground game, they were able to keep their percentage strong, even despite much lower turnout than expected. Let's break this all down. DeSantis won 21% of the vote. He finished second. Nikki Haley won 19%. Ramaswamy won just less than 8%. Now, by vote count, we should tell you, uh, with 99% of the vote counted by early this morning, Trump had more than 56,000 votes. DeSantis, 23,000. Haley, 21,000. Ramaswamy, about 8,500. Trump won 98. 98 of Iowa's 99 counties only lost Johnson County to Haley by one vote. So it was a decisive, clear-cut, no-questions-asked victory. Absolutely. And Nikki Haley did more poorly in those urban and college town counties than I expected. There were five counties in 2016 that Marco Rubio won, even though he finished a close third just behind Donald Trump. But he had won Polk County, that's where Des Moines is, Dallas County, the far western suburbs of Des Moines, Story County, of course, with Ames, Johnson County, Iowa City, and Scott County. And uh, Nikki Haley, I thought that Nikki Haley would do better. As you mentioned, she did squeak out the edge in Johnson County by one vote, but Trump was able to beat her everywhere else, and it wasn't as close as I expected. Trump won Story County, where we're from, with 34% of the vote, 1,158 votes, to Haley's 30%, 1,024 votes, and DeSantis's 911 votes. Haley did win in Ames, but that was it. Yes. And I want to say also that the expectations are really important here. If you had told anyone six months ago that Ron DeSantis would finish second, but he would only be 2% above the third place finisher, people would have been really surprised because Nikki Haley six months ago was way down below 5% in the polls, but she had been rising steadily in the last poll for by Ann Seltzer for the Des Moines Register showed her in second place. So they it it 
it almost was a disappointing result for Haley, even though really she did quite well. If you go back a year from now, everybody thought that Ron DeSantis would be clearly the second place candidate and would be much closer to where Trump was. Trump won so decisively last night that the Associated Press declared him the winner at 7.31 p.m. One minute after we left the air last night, Trump was declared the winner. Now, other news outlets called it for Trump soon after that. So DeSantis is left with nothing but calling that election interference. The media shouldn't have called the race that early. It was a controversial decision. And I I should say that it wasn't only Ron DeSantis who felt that way. The state party chair of the GOP, Jeff Kaufman, told the Des Moines Register's Brian Fonenstiel that he didn't, he was, he called it highly disappointing and concerning that the media called the results uh, less than half an hour after the many caucuses had been called to order. That you remember that if people are in line, the caucuses in theory are supposed to be called to order at seven. But if there were a, a big turnout and a lot of people still in line to register, they might not really begin their business until several minutes after 7 p.m. And so there were a lot of precincts, especially the larger precincts, where people hadn't even begun voting on the little paper ballots that Republicans use at their caucuses. And so I think that they're in, in the Republican Party, there were a lot of people who would have liked to see that wait. Now, of course, that didn't make a difference to where Ron DeSantis ended up. He was not going to, I'm sure there weren't a lot of people who looked at their phones and left their caucus because the AP called it. I think every, we, everybody knew Donald Trump was going to be the winner, but uh, DeSantis was trying to spin this, of course. And, and so anything that he can do to suggest that there were some external reasons that he wasn't closer to Trump, I mean, he, he would seize on that opportunity. Yeah. Trump did meet, as you say, and we say the polls and his expectations and one with the highest margin of support for a Republican in caucus history for a caucus without an incumbent. And he did this, Laura, by turning the traditional Iowa caucus playbook, which calls for retail politics and one-on-one interactions, on its head. Absolutely. So he didn't visit all 99 counties. I think he, he didn't even get to 20 counties. He held a number of big rallies and his team absolutely overhauled their ground game compared to 2016 when his campaign really wasn't running a very sophisticated field operation. And that's why he ended up finishing behind Ted Cruz, even though some of the polls going into that 2016 caucus had him ahead. I want to mention, I said that the turnout was lower, but just to give people an idea, in 2016, when Trump only had about 24% of the vote, about 45,000 people came out and caucused for him. Last night, about 56,000 came out in caucus for him. So really only about 11,000 more individuals, but it was because the turnout was much lower. It ended up being a huge percentage, as you said, more than half of the vote. And if you consider that Vivek Ramaswamy really was running almost like hardly any difference between Donald Trump on the issues. And the last ad he was running was basically saying, vote for me to protect Donald Trump because I will pardon Donald Trump. I mean, if you added his almost 8%, then you could say like 60% basically of the caucus goers supported the Trump agenda. I'm not sure this means that the traditional retail politics uh, caucus style is dead. I think this means that Donald Trump, as we have talked for a long time, is a one-off in terms of everybody knows him. Uh, and I'm not sure you're going to see that again. Yeah, I don't think that somebody else who wasn't already very well known could come in and just hold a couple dozen big rallies. They certainly wouldn't get the turnout that Trump got. But I, I saw a number of the national reporters mentioned this, that the Trump campaign, they realized that he had problems with certain 
traditional parts of the Republican electorate. So let's say suburban voters, especially suburban women. And so they went out to try to expand the electorate. And that's very difficult to do. To turn somebody from a non-voter into a voter or a non-caucus goer into a caucus goer is generally understood to be much more difficult than convincing someone who always votes to support your candidate. But Trump went out and his team, they identified people who had shown interest in him, who had come to any of his Iowa events, including the rallies he held here while he was president. And they made sure that their team reached out to those people. And many of them had never attended a caucus before. So they had precinct captains making contact, making sure those people showed up. And it it really paid off. I mean, he did quite well. Um, he was really the de facto incumbent in the race, but still there were, I mean, especially with the weather that we had, I mean, his team really did a good job of generating the turnout they needed. I think you deserve the credit for recognizing this earlier than anybody else. I remember you saying on this broadcast, not this early in the morning, but on this broadcast months ago, that you were recognizing he had put together a very sophisticated ground game, unlike what he had done before, and maybe unlike what we had seen before. Yes, I think anybody who was attending the media who were covering his earliest events in Iowa saw that immediately, that his people were collecting those caucus commitment cards. They were doing, they were very actively recruiting precinct captains. And I noticed when watching his rallies that they spent a lot of time with people explaining the caucus process and how how it goes and how important it is to show up. And remember, there were some people who said, oh, there's going to be complacency and people will think that they don't need to show up for Trump because he has it all wrapped up. And his team was all over that. They were constantly reminding people and Trump himself during his speeches was reminding people, don't pay attention to the polls. We really need to have, we need to put up big numbers on January 15th. And they did. He also went against uh, the, the traditional way of doing things in so many ways, but one of them, he spurned, I like that word this early in the morning, spurned some of the most prominent conservative leaders in the state, attacking Governor Reynolds incessantly for first remaining neutral and then endorsing DeSantis and spurning uh, Bob Vanderplatz, who endorsed someone else. Right. And Vanderplatz, I mean, he had endorsed Ted Cruz in 2016. He was pretty late to get on the Trump train, even in the summer of 2016. He was one of the last prominent Iowa Republicans to say he would definitely support Trump in the general election. So, yes, he I I remember when he started criticizing Governor Reynolds and some people thought, is he going to pay a price for this? But we know that Trump defies gravity in many ways, and this is one. I'm not sure that other candidates could come in here and insult the governor and, and get away with it. But Trump, he, he his popularity and his uh, his hold on his base of supporters is just so strong. He made just 22 scheduled public visits, according to the Des Moines Register, the entire caucus cycle. Well, his challengers, all of them were shaking hands at pizza ranches, visiting as many counties as possible. Ramaswamy did the double grassley, visiting the 99 counties twice. None of that made any difference. It didn't. And, and we'll see if 2028 is going to be a wide open race one way or another on the Republican side. And so we'll see if people go back to this retail campaigning. But I, I think in some ways it's been overstated. I mean, there have been candidates who were very successful with the retail campaigning. But Howard Dean, I think, campaigned in all 99 counties and he didn't win the Iowa caucuses. Barack Obama, conversely, you know, never did the full Grassley and he did quite well. Bernie Sanders never campaigned in all 99 counties. So we'll see what happens. I, I think that 
the certainly for Ron DeSantis, I mean, they would have expected that with the support from the governor and Bob Vanderplatz and all of the work that he put in, they were certainly hoping for better than 21% results. You know, they had said they were telling the reporters in December that they had 30,000 signed commitment cards from voters, and he ended up with a little more than 23,000 votes. So either, I'm sure the weather was a factor for some of those people, but also it could be that some of those people signed commitment cards early for DeSantis and just changed their minds. White evangelical Christians made up about half of the caucus goers last night, down from 62% in 2016, and a narrow majority of them supported, yes, Donald Trump. And that is one of the big stories. So in in the Iowa caucuses of 2016 and also in later primaries, because remember that Trump didn't lock up the 2016 nomination until quite late. And Ted Cruz was really much more of the candidate who consolidated the evangelical support. And we saw last night that Trump was so dominant, even in counties where he did poorly, those far northwest Iowa counties, he did very poorly there in the 2016 caucus. And he was dominant last night with Ron DeSantis being in second place with a little bit more of a gap between him and Nikki Haley in those far northwest counties. We had been saying this for months. There did not appear to be a path for any of his competitors to defeat him. And in retrospect, here we are on Tuesday morning after the caucuses. I don't think there was any way any of them could have beaten Donald Trump in Iowa. I don't think so. I mean, his his support just, I mean, there were never that many people looking for an alternative to Trump. He really was the de facto incumbent in the race. And I think also what helped him is this last, the last few months, there have been a spate of polls showing Trump leading Joe Biden either nationally or in some key swing states. And those have been mixed. I mean, there have also been polls showing Joe Biden leading Trump, but those have not gotten as much coverage as the ones showing Trump ahead. And so I think the fears maybe a year ago in the immediate aftermath of the 2022 elections, there were some people who thought, well, maybe Trump is too much baggage for the party. But as more and more Republicans became confident that they think Trump can win the general election, then they were perfectly happy to support him again. He claimed victory last night at his campaign's watch party in Des Moines, called on Americans of all political stripes to come together. That's kind of ironic because his campaign has been quite divisive. He praised his primary opponents. Here's a great quote that I like from last night. He said, in his words, Iowa, we love you. Just go out and buy larger tractors and more land. Don't worry about it. I saw I saw Jonathan Martin of the New York Times said, you know, nothing, no matter how much time he spends here, nothing will ever convince Donald Trump that the state isn't one big farm. And it is it was so striking at his rallies. He would talk uh, endlessly about how what he did for the farmers and the 28 billion in support. And and really, even in the Republican caucus, the most caucus goers are not farmers. But it was it. it that was quite funny. He did mention that one thing that I thought was notable was that he thanked Attorney General Brenna Byrd, who of course had endorsed him several months ago and said he thought she was going to be governor of Iowa someday. Well, we'll find out someday. We're going to talk about all the other candidates as well. But overall, uh, for Trump, we one takeaway, he is the huge favorite we always thought he was. Yes. And and nobody else really made that strong a case against him. I mean, Ron DeSantis would say things like, 
you have to earn it. And I've been to all 99 counties and he should be here on this debate stage. Well, those are what we call process arguments, right? Most voters are not interested in process arguments. And Trump was out there telling people that I I delivered for you and I'm fighting for you. And he literally at his rallies was saying things like, I can stop World War III. So that is more important to his base of supporters than whether he campaigned in all 99 counties. Yeah, and in spite of you know all the crazy things, uh, crazy quote unquote, uh, he said that go against the norm in political practice. The crowds in Iowa, uniformly, wherever he was, they loved what he said. They applauded it. They cheered. He was a he was a winner. Yeah, and I saw a, a few weeks ago, Ron DeSantis was on a. a- podcast that was by a Christian podcaster. And he said, you know, if I could change one thing, it would be those indictments because they sucked up so much oxygen and that Trump really gained from the indictments. Well, I mean, part of that was because Ron DeSantis and everybody else in the field was basically running interference. I mean, every time Trump was indicted, that most of the other candidates, with the exception of Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, but most of the other candidates were saying, this is terrible. The Justice Department, the Biden administration weaponized the Justice Department or whatever it was. They were basically reinforcing Trump's message about that. Whereas in normal political world, if you were running in a primary and your main opponent got criminally indicted, of course, that you would tell voters that 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 was unacceptable. The Trump campaign had always said, or at least in recent weeks, they expect to lock up the nomination for the Republican race by Super Tuesday in March. I don't see at this moment why they wouldn't do that. Yeah, I think that now they're going to be looking to seal it in New Hampshire. Nikki Haley is still, she's been closing on Trump in New Hampshire. There's still a chance that she could do very well there, but especially if Trump is able to get the win in New Hampshire. I mean, there's just There's no conceivable scenario where he doesn't win the nomination. We still have more to talk about from last night's caucus. But first, I should tell you, it is 17 after the hour on this Tuesday morning, really early after the early hour. Wherever you're listening to us and you're in tune with a special live edition of KHY Radio's Capital Week on the Tuesday after the Iowa caucuses. We're your one-stop source for everything political going on in Iowa. I'm Dennis Hart with Laura Bellin, and we're here every week at this time, though not live, to talk about politics, Iowa style, and how it's affecting all of us. Laura, I'm just making fun of the fact that we both got up early today showing our tremendous commitment to covering Iowa politics, and we have that, yeah. Absolutely. We do enjoy doing the show as well, but usually not this early. You, In fact, never. (laughs) All right, let's talk Ron DeSantis. He told a crowd full of supporters last night, His words, we got our ticket punched out of Iowa. I would change that. I think he got his face punched out of Iowa. Yeah, I mean, he's, well, certainly he was very relieved to finish second and not third, but this was a poor showing. I mean, after the spending more than $100 million between his campaign and the super PAC never backed down, and there was another super PAC created late last year, Fight Right, they spent so much money and they spent a lot of it targeting Nikki Haley toward the end. And they built this ground game. And I I will say that the DeSantis ground game, it did hold up better than I expected. And I think that that is probably the only reason he did finish in second place. But this is really not what he was looking for. He was their game plan was by the summer of 2023 they were hoping to have clear distance between him and the rest of the field other than Trump and really hoping that he would at least be within striking distance if not uh, almost defeating Trump in Iowa. And it just didn't it it never w- looked like it was coming together for him. His campaign really started falling apart almost the moment he started announcing he was running for president. He came out of Florida as a very popular governor down there. He'd done some things that Floridians loved. 
he announces, and in the early national polls, he's leading Trump. And yet he never caught fire. And almost every appearance seemed stiff and, you know, he wasn't comfortable in his own skin. He just <clears throat> had been running a lousy campaign. He's not a natural at working the room. You know, some politicians like Governor Kim Reynolds, for example, I mean, she's very easygoing and personable. People enjoy that when she goes to events, she talks to a lot of people. And there were stories right away from some of his earliest campaign stops in Iowa in May and early June that he just had awkward interactions with people. He didn't, I mean, there there was one where there was a World War II veteran there and he just like signed a paper for the guy and turned around and walked away. And even Kim Reynolds was trying to say, Governor, I think this World War II veteran would like a picture with you. I mean, it was just kind of odd. And there was a famous, of course, this got a, a lot of attention over the summer, but he was going not only to the Iowa State Fair, but he was going to a lot of county fairs and he was chatting with a little girl who was drinking an icy. And he said, wow, that's got a lot of sugar. Right? <laughs> so it was like, that's not what you say to an adorable child who you're interacting with. I mean, so he just was, he, he just had an awkward presence. And in the debates as well, I mean, he hit on all of his talking points, but he just seemed not comfortable. He accused uh, the media last night of several things, including writing our obituary months ago. And the truth is, it wasn't the media writing his obituary. It was the polls. Yes, I think so. The fact that he was never able to put that distance between himself and the rest of the field. And and the more people, it wasn't the case that the more people saw Ron DeSantis, the more they liked him. He was kind of stuck in that mode in the low 20s or high teens. And he did finish with about 21%. So certainly his people were very happy that he finished above that 20% mark. But when you consider the money and the time that he spent in Iowa, really a poor showing. So it's hard to see where he goes from here. He's going to New Hampshire next week, of course. He will get buried by Trump and Nikki Haley, according to the polls in New Hampshire. And then it's South Carolina and then it's Super Tuesday. I'm not sure where he goes. Uh, he's just way behind. And I wanted to mention one last thing. Ron DeSantis had by far the most legislative endorsements in Iowa. He had around 40 sitting Republican legislatures. And it, it just shows again, that endorsements are not that important, including even Governor Reynolds' endorsement. It just none of that moved the needle for DeSantis. So this morning, the Nikki Haley campaign is saying that the GOP primary is now moving into, quote, less friendly Trump territory. That's New Hampshire. And the polls do show it closer there. Trump leading her. She's behind in second place. The campaign also said Iowa shows Trump, and I'm quoting again, is more vulnerable than commonly believed. Well, I don't believe that. Yeah, I don't think so. The New Hampshire Republican electorate is really different. First of all, they have a much stronger tradition of independents participating. And there is a super PAC supporting Nikki Haley up there that is that is expressly targeting independents who are inclined to vote for her. And they have independents help John McCain win the New Hampshire primary going way back to 2000 against George W. Bush. And they, there have been a lot of surprising results in New Hampshire. I wanted to say that I think Nikki Haley, that the people supporting her made a big tactical mistake in Iowa by not targeting independents more. She seemed to have a lot of strength and the Americans for Prosperity action, which endorsed her in late November and was doing a lot of field work for her in December. They specifically said that they were focusing on Republicans because mostly that's who caucuses. But when you consider that she only finished a couple thousand votes behind DeSantis and a couple percentage points behind him, maybe if they had targeted more independents who were favorable toward her, maybe we would have had a different order of results. But I saw a lot of people were laughing last night when she said, well, it's, it's a two-person race now. And that's a strange thing for the person who just finished third to say. Right. 
Vivek Ramaswamy got out of the race last night after seeing the results. He said, there's no path for me to be the next president. Absent things we don't want to see happen in this country. And he endorsed Donald Trump. Uh, do you think if Trump wins the presidency, he gets a cabinet appointment? I think he gets some kind of prominent appointment, certainly. And and Vivek Ramaswamy, I mean, there were people speculating that he was going to drop out even late last summer and in the fall and endorse Trump. I mean, he always, among the other candidates, he was running the most pro-Trump campaign and really not distinguishing himself from Trump at all. And then I think that he did when he once he did well enough to qualify for some of those debates, then it was worth it for him to stay in until Iowa. I think that some of the people, I mean, I saw that Representative, former member of Congress, Steve King, was at a caucus in West Des Moines last night speaking for Ramaswamy and Ty Rushing of Iowa Starting Line interviewed him. And he said that the reason, one of the biggest reasons he had endorsed Ramaswamy was because of his stand against eminent domain for pipelines. And Steve King said he was very disappointed to, about Trump's stand on that issue. Well, you really have to question how important was that issue to Ramaswamy because he turned around and endorsed Trump immediately. Some other takeaways briefly on the caucus last night. Two thirds of GOP caucus goers said President Biden did not win the 2020 election legitimately. That is spread across the country, by the way, not just in Iowa. This is an interesting turnabout because every bit of Factual evidence we have is that he did win the election, but Republicans do not believe that. Well, and Donald Trump, you have to say that the Republican establishment in Iowa is one reason that that's the case, because after the 2020 election, nobody from the governor to state party chair Jeff Kaufman to members of the legislature, none of them ever said Trump lost. He lost the election and he should concede. They all said things like, People have valid concerns and there were some irregularities. And then they would say once Biden was inaugurated, they would say Joe Biden is the president, but they would never say he he won it legitimately. And so now you see that the, the party is dominated by people who believe Trump's story, that the election was rigged. And as you say, there's no evidence to support that. His team brought about 60 lawsuits and was not able to demonstrate any significant fraud in any of the states that Joe Biden won. Well, they believe that because simply they want to believe it. Right. And it was difficult because for somebody like Nikki Haley and, and even DeSantis, he was kind of making some weak electability arguments. He would say things like that these criminal indictments, that they could be distractions and we need somebody who could be a stronger candidate. But but truly, I mean, if you don't believe that Donald Trump lost in 2020, why would you think that he's going to lose in 2024? And that's where the majority of caucus goers are. They don't believe he lost the 2020 election. Well, we know we've talked about already that, yes, it was the coldest night ever in caucus history and it lowered the turnout. So we've discussed that. Uh, what impact? Let's just briefly assess the impact that last night's caucuses, we've uh, sort of hit on it sideways, going to have down the road. I think it just increases Trump's momentum. I think so. And, and several people were commenting last night that the fact that there was no clear second place winner, that DeSantis and Haley both got, he got 21%, she got 19%. That's actually a lot better for Trump than if one of them had gotten 30% of the vote and then and the other would have been well behind. Because in terms of momentum and getting a bounce in New Hampshire, it, it would have been much better for Nikki Haley to have a, a strong second place showing. So Trump was served very well. I will say that the Republican Party, they never have shown any interest in changing the primary calendar. But I do think that if 
Donald Trump doesn't win the, if he becomes the nominee as we expect and doesn't win the general election, you have to wonder whether the Republican National Committee is going to start thinking about whether it's wise for them to start the process in Iowa and New Hampshire. So you and I have watched Iowa caucuses for a while. We have both been to them. How would you assess this particular caucus cycle to the other? I mean, we've seen things we have never seen before. That's, you know, Trump with a good ground game. How would you assess this one? I think that many people thought the campaign was quite boring, honestly, that we didn't have lead changes going on. There was a little bit of of Haley rising, Ramaswamy rising earlier on, but I heard it, and the national reporters who have come to Iowa and covered campaigns, they thought that this one was much less interesting as well as we had discussed on last night's show that there were fewer reporters here. There were, I heard there were empty hotel rooms in Des Moines, which it very rarely happens around the time of the caucuses. So I think that the lack of drama was disappointing to people. And of course, there wasn't anything happening on the Democratic side. Some years, like 2016, you have very active caucuses on both sides. So as we are close to putting this particular topic to rest for this morning, anything else you'd like to say about the caucuses? I don't think so. I I think like I I was disappointed by the weather because I really wanted to see what would have happened with turnout if we had just a normal winter night. Were were we in a position to possibly see record-breaking Republican turnout? And of course, we'll never know. It's 29 minutes after the hour, wherever you're listening to us. And yes, this is Capital Week, a special live edition of KHY Radio's Capital Week on the Tuesday morning after the caucuses. I'm Dennis Hart, always have been. She's Laura Bellin, always has been. And we're going to have a go a little bit longer this morning because we have more to talk about uh, that we need to get in because we couldn't do it last night. Uh, it was caucus night. So we're going to spend a little bit more time with you. We promise we're going to get out of the way before local talk at seven o'clock. We absolutely promise that one. Um, Besides, I'm not hosting local talk this morning, Laura, so I I don't have to go right up to seven o'clock. All right. Let's get to something very serious. And it's really it's tragic. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. The principal wounded in the Perry High School shooting two weeks ago died Sunday. Dan Markberger, 56 years old. A tragic story. It really was. And, And the accounts that came out of Perry showed that when the gunmen started shooting before school in the area where people were having the school breakfast program. Dan Margberger, the principal, he put himself in harm's way to try to distract the the gunmen and to try to help other students get out safely. And he literally took bullets for the kids in that school. And uh, sadly, he succumbed to his wounds on Sunday morning, his wife announced. As I said, he was 56 years old. He had been the principal at Perry since 1995. His wife, Elizabeth, posted on Sunday morning in her words, and this, as I said last night, honestly brought me to tears, and this is her quote, he fought hard and gave us 10 days that we will treasure forever. That's just heartbreaking. It is, and my contacts in the Perry area just thought the world of him and were devastated by the news. Meanwhile, last Thursday, the funeral was held for 11-year-old Amir Jolif. He was the boy who was killed during the shooting. And so many people turned up for the funeral that, well, the crowd spilled over into a nearby church. Yes. And I mean, it just so tragic. Uh, He was his mother had told the media, I mean, he was a happy child. He was always smiling. His nickname was Smiley. He was excited to get back to school. Of course, the shooting happened on the first day. Perry was back to school after the winter holidays. He was excited to see his friends. And it's just devastating. And he, uh, I mean, I don't, I'm hoping that there will be some kind of lasting memorial to Amir Jolif in Perry. Six other people were shot and wounded, four teenagers and two school staff members. And as you'll recall, the shooter 
took his own life. Uh, it's one of those things that it's going to take a very, very long time for Perry to get over. Maybe they will never get over it, but we wish them nothing but the best. And there's still a lot we don't know. I've had some people ask me, well, how do we know where the student got the guns? And I, I don't think that that is publicly known right now. I mean, most usually when there is a, a teenager involved in a shooting, usually it turns out to be guns they had access to in the home, but we just don't know that information yet. All right, last week, the governor delivered her condition of the state address. It's an annual address. It was on Tuesday night, and she called for several things that we're going to get into. One of them, boosting pay for Iowa teachers, overhauling then the state agencies that help students with disabilities, and further lowering Iowans' income tax rates. Uh, let's talk uh, Let's talk about teachers. Yeah, so the uh, teacher pay in Iowa has been an issue. There's been a teacher shortage for some time. And so the governor's big idea is to spend $96 million. This is new money that would that would increase the minimum teacher salary for beginning teachers at 50000 and then increase so that after 12 years experience, teachers would be earning at least 62000 Now, in many school districts, the teachers are already earning more than that. But in some, especially in some smaller rural school districts, it's thought that that would help them recruit and retain teachers because that would be a fairly significant bump. You know, it's going to be, it's interesting. Uh, the Des Moines Register first reported this, and I looked it up again last night, at $47 million for the cost. And uh, we've also seen it reported for 96 Why the discrepancy? Well, she said it would cost $96 million, and I'm not sure where she's getting that. The, I, I, the last time I asked the uh, Iowa State Education Association, that's the largest teachers union, about this proposal, they told me that they're still studying it. It's a very complicated proposal. Of course, the, the bill, the governor has already introduced her bill and is hoping that the legislature will move on it very quickly. But I'm, I'm not sure exactly how this is going to work. And again, one of the big questions is, that it, what is this going to do for the school districts where teachers are already earning salaries that high? Governor did spend much of her speech on education, including those things called AEAs, Area Education Agencies. She wants them to be revamped. Yes, and the Area Education Agencies, this was created during the 19, early 1970s. It's a regional network. That, so each one covers several counties, a large group of counties, and they have specialists on staff to offer services not only to students in schools, but also in the zero to three. So any kids who are having developmental delays or other issues. So everything from physical therapy, occupational therapy, they have school psychologists, speech therapists, and they also offer a lot of other services to schools. They offer media services. They do crisis help. In fact, there were people from the AEA who were at Perry after that school shooting. They also send crisis teams to schools after there's a suicide. So the governor is proposing that they, many of those other services that they stop offering so that the AEAs would only be focused on services for kids with disabilities, and they would be under the direct control of the Department of Education rather than operating independently with their own budget appropriation. It looks like I have not been able to get a copy of the report, but it looks like the same out-of-state consultant guidehouse that came up with the state government reorganization plan last year. It seems like guidehouse may have been involved in drafting this plan to revamp the AEAs as well. Given the Republican dominance in the state legislature this year, do you think this was just going to skate through? 
Well, I think that it will, although there is an argument that this one is going to be really tough for school districts. The governor said that instead of having money go directly to the AEAs, she's going to have that special education money go directly to school districts, and then they can decide whether they want to contract with the AEA or whether they want to offer these services themselves. Well, most smaller school districts, especially, but even larger ones, they're not going to be able to keep they can't pay to have speech therapists and and full-time school psychologists on staff. They're not the media services they probably wouldn't be able to offer. So it's not really clear how that's going to help school districts. And there's a lot of people saying that this could be difficult for rural schools. The rural superintendents definitely don't like it. And I looked, the governor introduced her bill early Wednesday morning and looking at the 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 lobbying declarations, really the governor's office is the only one registered in favor of the bill. Almost everybody, every organization in that education field from the school boards to the school administrators to the Iowa State Education Association is very much against this bill. So I think it will be a battle, but the governor is is clearly proceeding as if it's already a done deal. The Department of Education is already advertising for more than two dozen positions and the legislature hasn't even taken the first step toward approving the idea. And I guess she's pretty confident. Okay. The governor also said, and this was her third really big takeaway, she wants steeper and faster cuts to lower Iowa's individual income tax rate faster than the bill she signed in 2022 that would lower the rate to a 3.9% flat tax by 2026. She's on a fast track toward really lowering rates. Yes. And she stopped short of promising to eliminate the income tax. That's something some Iowa Senate Republicans have talked about. And she had hinted a couple of times last year that maybe she was going to look at eliminating the income tax. But I I imagine that her budget staff told her that that wasn't realistic because she did not make that promise. She did talk about accelerating it in the the face of Iowa's large budget surplus. Remember that the Iowa legislature has been budgeting for these large surpluses. They've been they've been deliberately spending much less than the expected revenue and building up very large reserve funds. And those reserve funds are now going to be used to, it seems, to try to accelerate the tax cuts. I have not seen any bill introduced on this tax cut, so it may be a while before we have the details on that. I did want to mention one other thing from her speech where that it was a surprise to me that she came out and endorsed the idea of extending Medicaid postpartum coverage from 60 days postpartum to 12 months postpartum. Iowa is one of only about three or four states that haven't yet done this. And uh, it's something that Democrats in the legislature have wanted to do. It's actually something that the Iowa Department of Public Health proposed years ago, uh, but the legislature has not approved it. So the governor has proposed doing that, but also changing the eligibility so that fewer pregnant women would qualify for Medicaid in Iowa. And I think that's going to be a big debate in the legislature on whether they expend, extend postpartum coverage for everybody who now qualifies for Medicaid or whether they tighten it up so fewer people are able to get this Medicaid coverage when they're pregnant. One of the things we're going to be following as we resume our massive coverage of the state legislature next week on Capitol Week. Laura loves the legislature. Loves I coverage. do. And I enjoy the caucuses. I like the legislature, too. So it makes for a good team here. Also, last week, Chief Justice, Chief Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice Susan Christensen gave her annual condition of the judiciary address. And she said uh, she pleaded for more connections and understanding between the legislative and judicial branches. Indeed, things have been frosty between them. This was a very interesting speech. I mean, she explicitly appealed to the legislature's 
to legislators to try to be more understanding. And she said, look, I know that you don't always agree with decisions by lower court judges or by appellate courts. And, and frankly, even I don't always agree with those decisions. But she said, I, I want you to understand and I hope that you help your constituents understand that judges are trying to do the best job they can interpreting the law and interpreting the Constitution, even if you're not happy with some of the decisions they reached. I think that that partly is a response to there were many people in Republican circles who were furious that the Iowa Supreme Court deadlocked last June and did not allow the 2018 near total abortion ban to go into effect. Uh, also, she talked about the issues, the, the funding problems in the judicial branch, the, the about 95% of the judicial branch budget goes towards salaries. And she talked about how judges' salaries in Iowa ha are, have not kept up with inflation. Judges are paid much less in Iowa than in several neighboring states. And she made an appeal for the legislature to increase their funding. And I thought that was interesting because Governor Reynolds' proposed judicial branch budget does not include that the big increase in salaries that the chief justice was asking for. So she took her case directly to the state legislature and we'll see if that's successful. And quickly, last week, Major General Stephen Osborne gave his first condition of the state address, the guard, no, condition of the guard address on Thursday. He thanked lawmakers for their backing of military personnel and asked for support to modify the Iowa National Guard Service Scholarship. Yes, and I think that that has a good chance of passing. I mean, usually the legislature that wants to show their support for the National Guard. He also recognized the people who were part of the, that deployment, the National Guard deployment late last summer to the southern border in Texas. And that, by the way, included a state legislator, state senator Dan Dawson, who represents the Council Bluffs area. All right, this is Capital Week. I'm Dennis Hart with Laura Bell, and we're here live. We're live on this Tuesday morning because it's the day after the Iowa caucuses. We're going to be here for a few more minutes. Local talk is on the way. It'll be here straight up at 7 o'clock, so stick around. A few more things to discuss, though, Laura. Last week, the state of Iowa appealed a federal judge's decision to block enforcement of that state law, that controversial law that prohibits instruction about gender identity and sexual orientation in younger grades and bans books depicting sex acts in schools. They appealed. Yes, the state attorney general's office announced this on Friday afternoon, and I have not been able to get clarification from the attorney general's staff about is the state appealing only the book bans? The statement appealed, it mentioned that they were going to try to defend Iowa's law keeping sexually explicit materials out of school. It did not mention those teaching restrictions on sexual orientation or gender identity in grades K through six. Of course, that was part of the federal court injunction, but I'm not sure whether on appeal, whether the state is going to also be asking the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals to reinstate, to allow the state to enforce those teaching restrictions, or whether they're just going to focus on the ban of books and other classroom materials that depict a sex act. And remember, we had talked about this on our New Year's Day show, that the federal judge, Stephen Loker, said that these the, the sweeping book bans, that they were staggeringly broad in his words and could not uh, satisfy the First Amendment under any level of scrutiny. So we'll see what the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals has to say about that. That law had prompted school districts to already remove at least 470 unique titles from schools, according to the Des Moines Register. Yes. And the attorney general's statement said that we want to keep sexually explicit materials out of schools. But it's very important to note that the law does not say sexually explicit. It doesn't say obscene. It doesn't say pornographic. It says 
that only age appropriate materials are allowed and age appropriate does not include anything that has a description or visual depiction of a sex act. And that's why so many books, including award-winning books and books that are part of the AP literature exam for high school students, many of those books have been removed. Another story last week, a federal judge ruled that a state law, state of Iowa law, requiring gender balance on Iowa's top judicial nominating commission is unconstitutional and it cannot be enforced. Yes, and this was a, it was a surprise to me, and it was a very important ruling by Judge Stephanie Rose that the 14th Amendment does not uh, allow the state to enforce this requirement that's been in place since 1987, that the elected members of the State Judicial Nominating Commission, that they, that they have equal numbers of men and women. And of course, the lawsuit was just about this, the State Judicial Nominating Commission requirements, but the gender balance law applies to all state boards and commissions. And the governor has asked that the legislature get rid of the gender balance requirement. And that I think that that was already probably slated to pass. That was something her board review committee suggested last summer. And I think that this just seals the deal, this federal court ruling, that this is not consistent with the 14th Amendment. The Judge Rose did find that the state had a legitimate interest in trying to get diversity on boards, but that this the method was not narrowly tailored to achieve that goal, and it wasn't demonstrated that this law was still needed. Maybe it was needed in the 1980s, but that the state hadn't sufficiently demonstrated that it was needed now. And as you suggest, other state laws could well be uh, vulnerable to challenges. I, mean, I don't even think it's going to get to the point of legal challenges because I think the legislature is just going to repeal that gender balance requirement. So in 1987, the legislature enacted and Governor Terry Branstad signed this law saying that state boards and commissions have to have gender balance. And then uh, that was extended in, 20, in 2009 to cover many local boards and commissions as well. So I think that's all going to be repealed this year. Here was another uh, decision last week, this one by a federal appeals court. It reinstated couple of laws we've talked about numerous times over the years on this broadcast, two Iowa ag-gag laws uh, that were designed to criminalize trespassing on hog farms. Yeah, so these were laws. Iowa has passed four different versions of what are informally called ag-gag laws, and these were laws that were passed in 2019 and 2021. They were tightening up. Iowa, of course, has long had a trespassing statute, but this was there were special restrictions uh, for uh, trespassing on agricultural facilities, and also one of the laws dealt with uh, trying to obtain a job on an agricultural facility under false pretenses. And these had been challenged as a First Amendment violation because it was only it was regulating certain speech and certain viewpoints. And the uh, a federal court district court judge had found in both cases that these laws were inconsistent with the First Amendment. But the Eighth Circuit panel did not agree. And in both cases said that these were legitimate and that it, it did not criminalize certain speech or viewpoints. Now we're going to get into a couple of stories that uh, Laura just loves to talk about. Here's kind of a surprise to me last week. Iowa Senate, State Senate Democratic Leader Pam Yocum announced she is not running for re-election. Yes, I, I don't know how surprising it really was that she is the longest serving Democrat in the state legislature. She was elected to the Iowa House for the first time in 1992 and to the Senate in 2008. And I think the, the main thing that made it surprising was that last summer, Iowa Senate Democrats replaced their leader, Zach Walls, with Pam Yocum. And that was a big question. Well, wait, some people thought maybe she was planning to retire and it would be strange to elect a new leader 
it for that person only to retire a year later. But in fact, as you as you say, she has represented the Dubuque area for decades. She announced that she is not going to seek reelection. It is a, a Democratic leaning seat. I would not say it's a hundred percent safe Democratic seat. The Dubuque area has has shifted and is no longer as solidly Democratic as it once was. But that will certainly guarantee that there is a change in Senate Democratic leadership following the 2024 election. And you talk about the ouster of uh, Senator Walls last year. We never really did find out, did we, definitively why that happened? Yes, I think it was, there were a number of things that had been building. And then the the straw that broke the camel's back on that was that he had made some decisions on staffing, firing two longtime Democratic caucus staffers and bringing someone on without touching base with even other members of his leadership team. So I think that, w- but that was not the only reason. I think there had been some simmering disagreements over how things had been managed in the caucus. But but now, as I mentioned, I mean, there, there are only 16 Iowa Senate Democrats. We don't know how many there will be after the 2024 election, but we do know they're going to have to look for another leader. So it does raise the question of whether Zach Walls may come back as the leader. And one more note before we sign off on this Tuesday morning, former Story County Supervisor Marty Chitty announced he's going to seek the Republican nomination for Iowa State House District 51. Incumbent Dave Dio announced he's not running. Marty Chitty, very well known in Story County, but he's going to have competition. Yeah, so we it, it looks like we're on track to have a competitive Republican primary there because in December, very soon after Dave Dio announced that he wasn't going to seek another term, the mayor of Nevada, Brett Barker, who is also the current chair of Story County Republicans, announced that he is going to run for the seat. Now, as you say, a former supervisor probably has better name ID across the county as a whole. But on the other hand, Brett Barker leading the Story County Republicans. So I think it could be a very spirited primary there. Laura, we have covered a lot of material on this Tuesday morning. Anything else you'd like to say before I head back to, let's say, the bed? It's a little bit <laughs> here. No, I think we're going to be getting back. It's get, looking like it's going to be a busy legislative session. So uh, we'll have plenty of state legislative and state government news to cover. It has been a pleasure this past year uh, on Local Talk. We've been here for three years. This is our almost our fourth to cover the caucuses and, of course, the state legislative session. It was a busy year on Local Talk, one in which, a Local Talk that's coming up in a few minutes, on Capitol Week, uh, where we never really had an off week. It was hectic. It was. And I hope that in the future, I hope that the 2028 caucuses are not scheduled for the week after the legislative session opens its work, because that's a lot. Laura, a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Good morning. Enjoy the rest of the day. I don't know whether Schlarbaum and Metz are hosting the show this morning. They normally do on Tuesdays. But, gentlemen, we're about to make way for you. We've given you a few minutes uh, lead uh, before you can. You have to be on the air. So Local Talk coming up straight up in 11 minutes at 7 o'clock. A fine show. Stick around. Meanwhile, we, Laura and I, we're out of time. You've been listening to a special live edition of Capital Week on this Tuesday after the caucus night on KHOI Community Radio. A reminder that the views and opinions expressed here did not necessarily reflect the opinions of KHOI or its staff. Laura and I will be back next week in our regular time slot, 7 o'clock Monday night Central Time, when we'll talk about, as always, everything interesting, important, or entertaining about politics, Iowa style. We surely hope you can join us. Until then, thank you so much for the privilege of your time. We appreciate it and we value it. Laura, let's say goodbye together after I say between now and then, we hope you have a safe, healthy, and happy week. Here we go. So long. So long.